I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. My guest for this episode is Mark Bowles. Mark is an inventor, a serial entrepreneur, and a technology investor and venture capitalist. As you'll hear in our conversation, Mark's been involved with a number of different technology startups, but the company that you're most likely to know of is, not surprisingly, his biggest success. Mark was one of the inventors and the founders behind the company EcoATM. If you've ever been in a Kroger or a Safeway or an Albertsons or a Food Lion, just about anywhere in the country, you'll have seen the EcoATM kiosk, big green kiosk right next to the Coinstar machine. EcoATM was the first company to make recycling your mobile phone easy and profitable. You take your old phone to the kiosk, you plug it in, the machine runs some diagnostic tests, confirms its functionality, checks to see whether the screen is broken. A consumer rep, an actual human being in California, confirms your identity and that the phone is not stolen, and bang, you receive a valuation and a payment right there on the spot. EcoATM, in return, recycles the phone's parts, keeps it from ending up in the landfill, win-win for everyone. The story of EcoATM, and maybe more importantly, the successes and failures that led up to Mark and his partners founding EcoATM is only part of our conversation. The other part is what Mark has been involved with since he sold EcoATM and how that success has made his other endeavors possible. If you've ever wondered how the technology startup world works, what it takes to get a product like that to market, how a tech startup is launched and eventually sold, this is the conversation for you. And even if you're not personally interested in technology startups, the human story of this kind of venture and the kind of person you have to be to stick with it, uh, it's captivating. You'll hear Mark went through a number of failures before the big successes. And that is generally par for the course for people that are in this world. The location for this episode is a bit of a departure. Normally, the distiller is recorded in and around Cincinnati, where I live. Mark lives in San Diego, and I've been trying to find a time and a place to meet with him for the better half of a year. We were finally able to meet up at a family event in Lago Vista, Texas, about an hour outside of Austin, right on the shores of Lake Travis. We sat down about 100 yards from the shore of the lake one Saturday morning in early August. If you listen close, you can probably hear the birds in the trees, the kids playing on the lawn. Maybe the best setting ever for a podcast. And uh, Mark's sister, who is also my partner, Sarah Rose's mother, Marie, even surprised us with a couple of cocktails while we talked. I think my favorite part of the conversation, aside from the cocktails, was hearing Mark talk about the real specifics of what goes on in this fabled world of mystical VC startups. I asked him at one point about the potential for regret and anxiety in these huge decisions, like mortgaging his house at one point uh, to keep an idea afloat. Mark's answer is illustrative of the kind of person he is, driven, generous, humble, and dogged in pursuit of an idea in which he believes. And Mark is putting all those skills to work today on behalf of prisoners and recently released prisoners, helping people get their lives back together. I only wish we'd had more time to talk about that aspect of what he's involved with, but you never know. There will be future episodes. So in the meantime, settle in, put on your Shark Tank t-shirt and hat, walk with us into VC and startup world, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mark Bowles. Here it is on The Distiller. So first of all, thank you for meeting me out here on this uh, beautiful, hot Texas day. 
You're welcome. This is the first time we've done one of these outside, I think, but this is the perfect setting to do it. All right. I'm honored. Well, tell me, let's start off a little bit because I, I know a lot of things that you do and I know some of the things that you have done, but I want to hear you tell me. If somebody just asked you right now, what do you do for a living or what, however you want to say it, what your title is or just what are you doing these days? You know, it's a really hard question to answer, uh, and that's the answer I give when people ask me because I, I'm doing so much. Well, first, uh, nobody pays me to do anything now, right? So, <laughs> so that's I, the unfortunate reality. I'm of doing success. a bunch of uh, volunteer stuff. Uh, I'm doing a lot of investing. The only thing I really uh, think that I know much about uh, that's worth sharing with other people is um, how do you start a business, uh, particularly venture back stuff mm -hmm. and tech. It's the thing I've been doing for 30 years and I got, you know, uh, reasonably good at it, I think. And so I, um, I sort of focus on that as my lever and I use that to, uh, to volunteer to, uh, I do a lot of speaking to guest lecturing to college students, mm -hmm. um, MBAs and, and undergrads, um, I do a lot of speaking at events uh, about innovation, entrepreneurship, raising money, building teams, market research, uh, those kind of topics. Um, and I do a lot of that um, mentoring young companies, mm -hmm. some that I invest in, some that I don't. So I do a lot of angel investing. I've probably invested in a dozen startups. It's all local for me, which is San Diego. Yep. Um, uh, I, I've got, I don't do it really with the idea that I'm going to make a whole lot of money because it's, it's a hard game to actually make money in. Yeah. Um, but I do it to support the local community. And again, it's, you know, reflexive for me. It's, it's the thing that I know. And, uh, like everybody else, I like to do the stuff I'm good at yeah. or think I am. And so that's my lever. I do a lot of stuff, even in prisons, uh, teaching entrepreneurship to prisoners through, a program called Defy Ventures, and then another one that um, uh, that I've put together with a friend of mine, and then working with uh, guys that get out. Mm -hmm. How do how do they build their business and, and that sort of thing? I'm helping my son with his company. Uh, he's he's running a startup. So it really is sort of all about that uh, okay. thing. Uh, and as long as people still listen to me and take my advice i'll keep <laughs> talking it i'm shocked sometimes that people are interested in what i have to say but uh, yeah as long as they'll listen i'll keep talking is it is the majority of what you do in technology or is it at this point your experience is so broadly applicable that you're consulting in new business startups and venture-based stuff regardless of the yeah, so uh, that's a good question. I I uh, was all tech. You know, I was microprocessors and, and semiconductors and chips and wireless chips, and that got to be a hard startup game. So uh, what I realized along the way about maybe 10 years ago, a couple of companies ago, was that what I'm really good at is um, not the technology part, but it's building companies, building hmm. teams, raising money, expressing a business plan. Um and being able to communicate that story in a compelling way to investors. Uh, I, I got pretty good at separating investors from their money uh, along the way. And, and uh, so, yeah, I, I then diversified. You know, EcoATM was a company I started that was sort of in the environmental space, still tech, <coughs> but with, a, you know, uh, trying to recycle phones and inspire mm -hmm. that but in the masses. Um, but I've gotten a lot into uh, biotechnology and 
genomics in the last four or five years because that's a big it's sort of half of San Diego's uh, innovation economy is, mm-hmm. you know, two billion in venture capital invested there last year, and, and a little over a billion of it was for that stuff. So okay. I've, I've, uh, I don't claim to be an expert in the technology, but I uh, sit on a board of a research institute that that is in that technology, and I, you know, I'm, I'm maybe slightly more than a layman, but but not much more than that, and I've invested in several genomic companies, and so I'm. Uh, getting more familiar with that space, but really, it's not about the technology or the, the science for me. It's it's you know my value to these efforts is uh, more just how do you run a disciplined business yeah. and raise money and, and express that story and so forth. Yeah, I think that distinction is important. I mean, the conversations that I have with people, I've been involved in some entrepreneurial ventures, not nearly to the degree that you have, but even just drawing that distinction for people that haven't been involved in that world, that those are separate disciplines, that they require separate expertise, and that knowledge in one doesn't in any way equate to success in the other yeah. is a very important sort of early stage learning for most of the people that have a good idea and maybe want to think about how that would become a business. It is It is amazing how different those worlds are. And we all live in the same community, but when people go to work at a tech company versus a uh, you know genomics or, or healthcare or biotech, it is, um, they're different communities and mm-hmm. they really almost don't mix at all and they run things differently. And one community is 10, 15 years behind another community on certain things and the other's 10, 15 years behind the other one. And uh, the capital is totally different. The investors, their mindset, the wavelength, the, the words per minute that they speak, mm-hmm. totally different. Their cycles are, are, are just, you know, massively different. And I, I didn't learn that till four or five years ago. I'm like, who are these people? <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, but I'm slowly starting to get plugged into that community too, and it's uh, it's a different world, but but very interesting. Lots of stuff happening there. Well, let's go back a little bit because one of the things that I'm most interested in, I know some of your story, I know a bit of the the Eco ATM mm-hmm. story, not much of it, um, but I'm interested to know how you uh, how you even got into this world. So. At, at what age um, did you start to dabble in technology at all? And how did that, both in terms of your own interest and in terms of your education and eventually work, result in you getting into entrepreneurial ventures and inventive sorts of ventures? Yeah, so it didn't start with tech for me. It actually started uh, at a or greasy spoon restaurant uh, in Crystal Beach, Texas. We're being served uh, a, a cocktail. Thank you, go. Marie. Genius. Yeah, thank you. All right. Um, so the um, ching ching. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Aperol spritz. Mm. Um, so it actually started when I was really young. Uh, you know, my parents were divorced when I was four, and then mother remarried when I was about six, and we bought a little restaurant, six bar stools, and two booths. <laughs> Uh, in Crystal Beach, Texas, population 600, and it was sort of Cajun fried seafood, you know, hamburger place. But we had a two-bedroom house behind it on stilts. Um, mm-hmm. This is a barrier island right on the border of Louisiana and Texas and the Gulf Coast. And um, we had five kids in one bedroom and the parents in the other, and uh, and we were the staff in the restaurant. And so... Uh, got off the bus after school and uh, three went and went to work and yeah. bus tables and you know uh, wash dishes and peeled shrimp and 
and then grew into that business uh it was the way we ate and so i um i got to see at an early age how to sort of run a business and a dollar in a dollar out and um how that whole cycle works and once you've seen that system even though it's a really small system business you know dollar in dollar out um it was really hard from that point everywhere i worked after that i was like well i, I it was harder for me to be a cog in the wheel than yeah how does the business how work? does the business work? Right. yeah i just have i'm not gonna be a sales guy or whatever so i i always thought about the whole business and so after i worked my way through um college and uh graduated in 87 i um got a few job offers and one of them was in california in silicon valley and I knew kind of what that place was. And what did you study in college? I got a degree. It's, it's sort of a, uh, it's from the engineering department. It's an engineering degree, but it was called industrial distribution. Hmm. And uh, it actually was a really genius. Thing. It was easier than an engineering degree because I didn't have to take the last year of the hardcore stuff, uh, but instead took business classes. And um, turns out, you know, seventy-five percent or something of the entire GDP goes through these goes through industrial distribution with pipe valve and fitting, electrical plumbing, mm, mm-hmm. uh, lumber, and, and uh, these were not sophisticated, you know, well-run businesses uh, for the most part, and this degree was to bring some sophistication to those uh, things, including semiconductors, okay. and so I got hired and I, I went to work for a big distributor in Silicon Valley selling chips, mm. and uh, so... Uh, yeah, and then the, the other uh, really formative part was when I got to Silicon Valley, I, I, I was, it was six, seven, eight years later before I started my first startup, but I worked for big companies and I did product marketing, So, but I ended up in sales and I, uh, I got this PhD in innovation in Silicon Valley by uh, going, I worked for Motorola semiconductor and this company made everything and if you were building anything Mm -hmm. you needed some of their product and so i had this business card that was like a golden ticket i could walk into any company big small startup you know whatever and i'm from motorola and i you know oh come back yeah take me in the back and those engineers show me everything they're doing and to tell me their business plan and oh, the whole thing education like, it was this like magic card yeah. that i could just walk in anywhere and they would just educate so i i got this amazing and i would call on two or three customers a day you know uh, sometimes and and so you get this exposure to big companies mm-hmm. medium-sized companies small companies but all trying to innovate on this crazy stuff to use your product and so and then you start to see the pattern recognition of, you know, the, the, the startup guys had a faster words per minute and mm-hmm. they were more passionate and they were, you know, worked longer hours and harder and they were really loving what they did. And, and uh, they also had a lottery ticket, right, if their stock came in, you know. Right. They, uh, and the big companies were slower and kind of there, to, you know, the people to, to collect a check and they weren't as excited and, and so forth. So I'm like, I want to do that the exciting thing yeah i want to do the exciting i don't want to i don't want to do the big company thing anymore and so i got too big for my britches in mid 90s i started my first uh first startup and it was what i knew it was semiconductors because i've been doing that so i started a microprocessor company and uh manufacturing selling um well reselling no no in that business you don't really nobody manufactures you all you outsource it right okay it's a 
you know five billion dollars to build the fab right. that would fabricate yep. the stuff. So you, you just outsource it. But actually, before that, I got involved with. Uh, there was a short time in the mid '90s when you could clone a Apple Macintosh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Jobs had left, and he was. Oh, like I remember next. those. Yeah, the Mac clones were. A yeah, big, yeah, and it was a big deal. And I was right in the middle of that because I was. Okay. I was actually my last job at Motorola was the Power PC, which was the mm-hmm. microprocessor. Uh, I was the. Uh, VP of uh, market development. So, so my job was to go and evangelize PowerPC. Well, the guys that needed it were Mac clones because yeah. that's what Apple was using. So uh, they gave away four licenses, and I ended up being involved in each one of those and uh, helping them raise. You know, I, I went. Uh, I want you to buy my product. If you can't get venture funding, then you're not going to be able to do that. So I helped them raise money, and mm. I. Uh, so I got into the money thing, and I got uh, friends and family and other people to invest, uh, you know, uh, several millions of dollars into uh, a few of those, and uh, and then so I got a taste for it then, but I still kept my day job mm-hmm. um, at, at Motorola, and then I uh, and then I decided to go do one myself. Okay, and um, that one ended up being a. $80 million, six-year smoking hole in the ground at the end. But we actually did have a huge offer at one, but this was the meltdown in 2000. Okay, right. And uh, Just it, the timing of the market. The timing was, we, we actually had a really, you know, uh, not a written offer, but a verbal for $750 million bucks to wow. buy this thing we'd been working on forever. Yeah. And, um, and it worked, and it was, you know, we, we, and we said no. No, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're not going to sell. Why? Um, just stupidity and blind hubris. I mean, we were just like. Uh, so you think it, 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 it was wasn't a just me? It was. It, I was young. No, but it was a mistake. It, you was, said. it was. Oh, it was a massive mistake. Okay. All right. Well, it, uh, you do the math. Uh, <laughs> we sold the uh, sold the assets of that company about eighteen months later for two million dollars, and oh. we had three million in debt. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, that was a lesson in. And timing and uh, heartbreak and, and lots of other stuff. But yeah, well, the reason, not to take us off track, but yeah. one of the reasons why I asked if that was a mistake is because I was literally having a conversation with somebody about exactly this issue. And one of the things that I think um, a lot of people who in various industries who are in startup ventures don't feel like they actually have the ability to say no to money that's not maybe going to be helpful to them. Yeah. And who knows, maybe the market goes a different way. That's the right decision for you guys. It just, uh, it sounds like the, the timing and different forces. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, the, with hindsight 2020 and all that, um, we were just dumb. I mean, it was a really terrible mistake. And mm-hmm. we, we uh, just, yeah, not good. Just hubris. You guys thought you were worth more and you're never yeah, going to get Yeah, just it. no. We, we're really proud of this thing. We're just going right. to hold on to it and right uh, we'll go public. And yeah. uh, uh, no tech company went public for the next five <laughs> years or something after that. But, oh. uh, yeah, no, it was it was terrible. How, uh, so talk about that for a second because that's got to be devastating. It is. And that's, you know, uh, I like was It's easy to look back on now and kind of laugh, but I'm, I'm sure no, it was no, like it was six no fun or eight months where it you were It was no fun laughing. at all. Uh, I, it's not just the money is look i just put six years of uh-huh. literally 80 90 hour weeks yeah. into this thing and made it work and we had 140 people we had that had jobs and we had to, i had to go fire all yeah. these people like wave after wave oh. after wave and and uh 
couldn't raise money and and uh yeah no it's devastating not just for you but for everybody around you and living through that snow it's much much more fun to build them up than it is to tear them down and uh it's much more fun to exit with you know a positive thing for everybody the it's a harsh environment the startup stuff it really is it's been glamorized in this rock star thing in the last 15 years or so um but it really is one of the most heartbreaking sort of careers you can embark on because no matter how good you are uh you're gonna fail a bunch Mm -hmm. and you're gonna it's a it's a really harsh harsh environment um i see people go through it all the time because i mentor Mm -hmm. you know uh you know hundreds of people and it's really not uh, a thing for most people to go do it really is five percent of the population is cut out for that thing yeah and there's all, lots of harsh jobs right working in an emergency room or uh, driving an ambulance or being a uh, you know policeman or a soldier i mean there's lots of things that you can do that are harsh but from an emotional standpoint it's uh, a roller coaster every day the highest highs and lowest lows and they may be 10 minutes you know mm-hmm. from each other and it just is a whiplash thing and it's it, it, it bucks most people off and and sours you and what's uh, the um I guess two questions about that. Number one, like, what's the actual sort of like psychological impact of going through that over and over again? And what what personality traits does it take to be able to stay in there and survive and not have that crush you when that's going to happen? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I like to attribute a little bit of it. To, you know, I grew up in Southeast Texas and you know, oil country, and there really is kind of a boom bust mentality there. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the you know the farmer's almanac of the, the population of you know that area it's it's boomed and busted you know uh 10 times since 19 since they you know the oil was discovered right. in that uh, spindle top and it's a um it's a mentality that if it's good it's gonna go bad soon right <laughs> and so uh california's not like that where i live now california's everything's always been up and to the right i mean there's little cycles here and there but it's just all growth and sunshine and you know whatever and there's not as much of that mentality there and so um i I think i have a little bit you know more of that boom and bust from and i grew up you know really pretty poor and i I didn't you know i i I don't want to be i don't want to be poor anymore i didn't want to be poor and so i try to avoid you know uh although I've, i've gone back to being you know fairly poor a few times since then but i i don't i don't like that right so but the uh, other side of that is you know how to do it like it doesn't yeah. it doesn't kill you it exactly. doesn't compromise who you are at your core you're like yeah, i've exactly. been here and i dug my right. way out of it i'll do it again right right yeah, yeah i didn't start i think if i started it you know not poor it would be harder right, right. so right. Uh, anyway i think i answered your question yeah yeah you absolutely yeah. did well so like you you mentioned that like you've been through this cycle a number of times and then eventually what's the what's the common thread between and maybe you know you can mention a few other things that you were involved in where do you go from that like how do you what's the next thing that you start off in and how do you gain the courage after that first big huge hit which is part of what we just talked about to create the next thing well um that on that that company that was the six-year 80 million dollars smoking hole in the ground how to tear down a 140 person organization um and missed the big opportunity i in parallel with that a few years earlier uh, about a year and a half earlier uh i had 
started helped start another one on the side, another semiconductor company. Um, it was actually some guys that were working for me that said that we have this idea and you know run a pass. And I that's a great idea. I can't do it because I'm running this other thing, but I'll help you fund it and get mm. it funded and and uh, I'll devise and whatever. And so that one, um, it was literally uh, six people founders in nine months and we sold it for 110 million bucks mm -hmm. with very little cash in um and so in parallel with this huge smoking hole in the ground i had this other success that, that probably gave uh, left a little wind in my sail where i you know right. uh, but the truth is I, I was so tied up in this uh startup thing that I don't. I wouldn't have gone back to work for a big company. I was going to go start another one anyway, and I. Mm. Um, it just was in my blood and still is, and I, I. I just couldn't go back to. To work for a big company, and, and quite frankly, nobody would hire me. I'm a weird duck, really. I mean, I, I'm a terrible interview. I just. <laughs> I'm just. I, I'm a. I'm a jack of all, master of none, and mm. people want to hire a master for these silos. Sure, they, they want build, specialists, and, and I'm not that guy. And so, I. I, I at some level. I was aware of that even then. I'm acutely aware of it now. But back then, I was like, "Yeah, there's no no job I could get that I want. Mm -hmm. I got to go make my own. I got to go do this thing." And it's, uh, I'm not. I really am not. Um, and this kind of is another extended answer from the last question. I'm not really, uh, you know. Uh, I don't, my success at this thing is just really a numbers game, and I'm a barnacle. I just stick with mm -hmm. stuff, and I have perseverance, and I go back and forth. I'm not smarter than most people. I'm not uh, more technical or more, uh, you know, but I work really hard, and I stay with it like a barnacle. Uh, and that really turns out to be a lot of what separates uh, success from failure in this particular startup game because uh, it is so harsh like I said and it bucks a lot of people off and you just don't want to go do it again yeah. and I don't know any better I just you know once I get strapped into the harness I just pull against the leather until uh, something happens right yeah I, do you think that's just true of life I mean like I so I've experienced in the entertainment industry you know there's all these industries where there's these discussions of talent or intelligence or some x factor that's the differentiate differentiator between the people that make it and people that don't and the older that i get i actually think it has nothing to do with any of that it's luck and hard work it's luck and hard work exactly and, and, and it sounds cliche and when you say it it doesn't really mean anything when people hear it like oh yeah luck and hard work but it but it really is the thing and yeah. i don't even know how to say those words in a way that doesn't sound cliche where where people are because i i find myself saying and it sounds self-serving to yeah i work really hard but it's the truth that mm -hmm. that is the thing that separated me from way smarter people than me mm -hmm. that um is i just and, and there's also a fine line too because uh there's a really fine line between being a persevering you know hard-working stick-to-it entrepreneur and just a totally irresponsible jackass yeah. right because where you can't listen to the, the all the factors that are yeah saying no. yeah and sometimes it is time to give up and go, <laughs> you know uh and sometimes you know there's a balance with you know you, you've got other responsibilities you get your family and and mm -hmm. you know you're you're uh, all that so you you got to balance those things and it really becomes quite hard and again it's not for for everybody but yeah luck and hard work <laughs> yeah well no and it sounds like another piece of it that's worked for you is sort of uh diversification um 
you know, and whether that's something you did intentionally or whether it's something that you learned to do or it just happened was not putting all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, you got one six-year endeavor that you're putting everything into, but even at that time, you're playing another poker game on the side that might be the one yeah. that pays off. Yeah. Is that something you've done? Is that something that's been in your mind? And is it something that has that has been true of you throughout these ventures? Have you always sort of had your, your hand in a number of pies to wait to see which one of them is going to come out? Um, not, I mean, I have been totally monogamous with whatever thing I was involved in. I could only be a, you know, I mean, that for me, that's the only way to play the game uh, is to be completely immersed in whatever you're doing. Because otherwise, it pulls again, focus. I'm not I'm, I'm not smart enough to do be really really good at this and that. I mm. got to get enough focused, and then I can be you know good at what I do because you end up making that one thing finite, and you really understand everything about it, and you become an expert at it. But that takes all of my effort, mm. and so. Um, while well, I invested in this other thing and helped them raise money and answered a phone call every now and then, I wasn't doing that thing. Okay. And the reason that that one was successful is because these guys were geniuses and picked the exact thing that this company Broadcom, uh, this company Broadcom bought it, that they, you know, forecast, you know, the train's going down this track and they're going to need this at mile, whatever this, you know, particular technology we're building we'll just build it and sit in the middle of the tracks you mm -hmm. know? and they ha and it worked <laughs> nine months later they rolled up and said i'll take that for 110 million bucks right and yeah. so um so that had nothing to do with my smarts or my mm -hmm. contribution at all i did help them raise the money and i helped them you know structure the company and how to build it but i didn't i didn't that was that was a lot of luck right? okay so um all my execution powers were on this one right. monogamous you, you were focused. And that's pretty much what I've done all along. Right now, I'm, I'm not doing any one big thing. I'm, you know, s scattered all over the place for the, about the last five years. But um, the only way for me to play that game is to jump in all the way in mm -hmm. and, and just dedicate every ounce of my energy to it. And I don't want to do that anymore, quite frankly. I mean, it's yeah. just too much. I'm, yeah, I don't yeah. have to and I don't want to. This is a younger person's game yeah. for yeah. the most part. What's the, the impact, the difference between that lifestyle... And um, it's sexy. On the outside, it sounds like, yeah, man, you're, you're in this thing. Yeah, you're working hard and you're putting everything into it. It could result in the big payoff. It could mm -hmm. result in nothing. But at the end of the day, you're going home to a wife and three kids who maybe through a lot of that stuff are sort of, you know, looking at the, looking at the bankroll before it pays out. Like, what's the cost there? And I guess my specific question is, describe in those first lean years the decisions and the sacrifices on a human level. Yeah, I mean, to be, uh, to be fair, it, it was never so lean. I mean, it wasn't like we were ever like short on food or we lived in nice neighborhoods and, and you know, houses. But I... Um, but even then, there's a psychological yeah. I mean, I'm trying to impact. Yeah, I mean, I got three young kids, and and they're all going to want to go to school, and and where the you know uh, I want to have be you know in nice schools and in, in, in nice neighborhoods, and and uh, be able to pay for college if they want to do that and so forth. So um, yeah, I was I didn't want to, and I also didn't want to be poor, right? Mm -hmm. That really you know I've said that a few times, but that was sort of a baseline driver for me 
Yeah, I don't know if that sounds good or bad, but I. I, I well, no, really, when you've been there. Yeah, I, I really don't. If, want unless to be you've poor. really been yeah. poor, you don't understand what that statement means. And it wasn't means. about I, it. wasn't I wanted to be rich. It yeah. was that I didn't want to be poor. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yep. Um, it was I didn't want to. Uh, so. Um, yeah, there was a lot of lean years. I mean, there was there was a lot of uh, time where we uh, didn't do much other than you know eat and go to school and uh, you know Work sort of hunker down. At, yeah. at one point when I this was in two thousand and seven, I had a by the way I had a second eighty million dollars six year smoking hole in the ground uh, <laughs> that was right on the end of the other one. Uh. So it was a twelve year. Yeah, sixty million dollar. You know, two. You know, there's two hundred other employees involved in all this stuff that um, it all went up in smoke for them too. So I had two of those back to back, and um, and in startups you don't get paid what you would be paid outside of that doing that job in a big company, for no. example. Like you're not getting maybe market half, rate salary, maybe half, yeah. maybe yeah. So. Um, so I really wasn't making a, a lot of money and for a long time. And, uh, and I started this company, EcoATM, and I believed in it. Market turned again in 2007, 2008. And uh, I ended up at one point having to, uh, I had pitched, uh, I don't know, 30 VCs at that point mm -hmm. to get this thing funded. And not only was I getting, it's not a good idea, it was, this is a bad idea, mm. and you'll never get this funded. And these are friends of mine, VCs, that are like, Mark, this, let me tell you, be honest with you. This yeah. is, this is, you'll never get this funded, and it's a terrible idea, and you really should go do something else. And I'll look at that, but just don't do this, right? And I still believed in it, and I came back from a trip to Silicon Valley, and uh, this VC I know had, had pitched four or five, you know, over a couple of days, and I came back. And, you know, my wife said, how'd it go? And I said, well... Uh, Wayne said um, it was a terrible idea <laughs> that I shouldn't do this <laughs> and uh, and it, I'll never get it funded and so did the other guys and uh, and by the way we need to sell the house um, and we need to pull the kids out of uh, private school and we need to sell their college funds because uh, I got to keep fund I didn't have any funding and we were trying to build the company and uh, build a prototype and so I have no income for I don't know, two years at that point uh, not even my small yeah. income and then I uh, am also all the outgo right and so uh, that was an interesting conversation but we ended up doing it um, and you come home and you say not only are they not gonna fund it we're gonna fund it we're, we're gonna, gonna fund, fund it by it. selling all of our yeah assets. so I was I mean I've shoved everything in at that point um, and you know I'm 45 or something and um, I got no bank account left, and I'm my last little yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's chips across the table. I'm sliding it all in, and I got a house back. I got the kids in back in private school. I got it all back, but they don't all work out that way, right? That's that fine line right. I was talking about mm -hmm. between being persevering and being yeah. a jack. Because I was absolutely sure Eco ATM would work, but I was also absolutely sure that the other two sixty million, yeah. eighty million dollars smoking holes in the ground would work, and they didn't. Mm -hmm. Right, so I knew in quotation marks, but but I, I didn't really know. Um, but again, I probably crossed the that line I talked about, but it worked out. So, are you a guy? I think about that, and I I think if I was that guy, number one, I'm not sure that I that I would have the perseverance to make that decision. But I do know that if I made that decision. I wouldn't have slept for three months. Like I would have laid in bed every single night with anxiety. 
about that? Do you work that way, or are you sort of like, no, damn it, I made the decision. We're gonna we're gonna see what happens. Um, I I pretty much make decisions and don't don't look back. I'm I think I'm lucky that way. Mm. Um, I don't get tortured by stuff that I can't change anymore. Um, I may remember it and, and try not to make that particular mistake again, but I, I, I don't I don't really have that uh, that problem. I, 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 I made it and I live with it. So, right on. Yeah. Talk a little bit about I it. I did, I'll tell this, I did uh, at the moment when they actually finally accepted the offer and we, we rode the market down for a year and a half on this house and I lost all the equity I'd built up for 15 years in California, which is substantial, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a lot. And uh, but it was all on paper in a house, yeah. and the market in San Diego dropped forty percent, thirty-five percent, and I rode that down. And I had to actually write a check to sell my house, oh. so I lost you know seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars in yeah. equity I'd built up. So now I don't have a house. I don't have any of the equity. I can't get back on that train in California. You know, the no, house you can't do it. Um, so I was pretty much cooked at that point if it didn't work out. So right. um, anyway. Wow. Well, talk a little bit about uh, Ico ATM because I'm also interested in where's that idea come from? Was it, um, uh, and I'm interested in this for Ico ATM, but also just in terms of a person like yourself, an inventor, um, an entrepreneur, you know, do you wake up one day with this great idea? Was it an c- accumulation of thinking over a couple of months? Tell, tell a little bit. I know what Eco ATM is because I see it. People probably know what Eco ATM is because if you shop at a Kroger or a Safeway or an Albertsons or a, a Food Lion, mm-hmm. just about anywhere in the United States, it's right there next to the Red Box or the Coinstar machine, mm-hmm. and it's the machine that recycles your cell, yeah. your phone. You plug it in. There's a, a person on the other end. It's not an automated customer service. It actually connects you with a human being in a call center who runs. No, well, no, the, 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 it actually does. It would operate without a person. It oh, okay. uses uh, cameras okay. and machine vision and artificial intelligence. And it, um, it actually can value the phone uh, by both uh, the visual inspection uh-huh. and the electrical inspection. You're really looking to see if it'll power up and if the battery gotcha. uh, is, is okay. And if the screen is cracked or broken, yeah. if the glass is, and then if the actual LCD. And that just that information uh-huh. and you can tell how scuffed up it is mm-hmm. you know um and uh, the scratch density we can calculate all that stuff but it um but it 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 has a uh, human involved not for evaluating the phone okay but for avoiding any uh buying stolen phones so we I have see. we force every person this is a decision we made really early on is to, you have to show your driver's license mm-hmm. and a camera looks at that and then we have a camera looking at the person that presented the driver's license. And uh, those two images appear on the screen. There's probably 25 people in San Diego right now sitting at a screen. Okay. And every transaction, you know, there's a stream of them and it comes through and they're looking to see if the person matches. And um, and then we get your thumbprint. Mm-hmm. And then we get the serial number on the phone. And we present all that data to um, all the law enforcement databases and so forth. But we have a human involved because... Um, it's hard to match the images. Uh, people's hair changes, and sure. you have glasses on, and so so we have a human involved to make sure that it's. Uh, and we do a lot of rejections, by the way. Mm. And we are the best in the industry at avoiding stolen phones. Only about one in fifteen hundred that we collect. That was these are the numbers from when I left. I'm not involved yeah, anymore. Yeah. This was five years ago. Okay. Um, but they still do it the same way. And 
it's um, we're we're really uh, best in the business at avoiding stolen phones, and so that's why the, the humans are involved. Okay. Um, and yeah, interesting business model. So, where did it come from? So I was um, after my, you know, uh, second six-year, eighty million dollars smoking hologram. I'm like. The semiconductor business is too hard. Just to know whether you win or lost is mm-hmm. it takes six. Is it was six years in? It's probably eight or nine now, okay. or it would be if I had started one then. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna what I'm good at is starting companies, building teams, raising money. It's not the technology. So why don't I go do something? It freed me. I'm like, wow, I can do anything. I can go, you know. So um, I I like to when I'm ideating for six months, a year, whatever it takes. Um, I do that best with other entrepreneurs okay. who are sort of in between companies and um, and you know you find those people in the community and you're, it's usually coffee shops and you meet and you toss out ideas and I read this and I read that I, I, here's a problem we could solve and so I was working with a couple of guys and um, we were working on I don't know five six seven different ideas in parallel and beating them up and spending okay. three or four hours every day at the coffee shop and do, doing research at home and so one of the guys, you know, actually, he had the problem statement. He's like, look, there's a billion smartphones shipped, or a billion phones shipped last year. This is 2008. Um, and there's a survey. It actually came out in the summer of 2008. Nokia did uh, uh, 13 countries, 6,500 households. And only 1% of people had ever reported, you know, recycling a phone. Like, okay. wow, what's happening with the other billion of these yeah. things? And what can we do about that? And then... You know, okay, well, I don't even know where to recycle, right? I had some vague notion of there's a box at the zoo you could donate, and there, you know, there was the battered women's box at the at Verizon, but it's got to be a bigger scale than that to handle this problem. So now we had a problem statement mm-hmm. and what could be an interesting market. And then, um, and then uh, one day, so we were beating up other ideas, and we had a bunch of bad ideas. One was like Boy Scouts. Okay, the Girl Scouts do cookies. What if we made the Boy Scouts an environmental thing? They'll go collect um you know door to door they'll collect uh people's phones just knock okay. and ask and then you know they can sell them and it's, we met with the boy scout leadership and stuff and uh long story short there's a lot of reasons why you don't want to send little boys to uh, strange people's houses yeah um and so we abandoned that we had some other bad ideas one day one of the guys walks in and he says uh, hey i saw this coin star machine at the what if we did that but his idea was a um, sort of you fill out an envelope, put the phone in, it goes, we go pick them up, and then 30 days later, we might send you a check. Right, if, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I don't, I don't think that will inspire people, right? And being a tech guy, and I had some background in a, another company in facial recognition, I thought, wow, what if we could automate this and pay cash on the spot? Mm-hmm. Um, that would be enough incentive to inspire mass participation, right? And so I started thinking about that, and I started talking to some vision system experts on the algorithms, and and then um, so that my contribution was automate it, okay, and uh, use you know machine vision to do that and pay immediately, right? Yeah. And the other guys didn't like that at all. <laughs> Actually, in the beginning, they they came to like it, obviously, but they didn't like. Nah, it's a terrible idea. But filed some patents and uh, on those claims, and then. Uh, you know, went off to build a, a pre- and I liked the idea of, you know, I had six or seven other ideas, and they they were actually, most of those were pretty strong, um, 
but I the the fact that it was an environmental thing, I wanted to do uh, something in that space. You know, the doing uh, good while doing well thing, and it seemed like a I don't know a symmetrical thing to do because of all the other technology I'd helped build and mm -hmm. get out into the market. Let's do something to help clean that sure. stuff up, and um, it's also much easier to build a company that has a, a mission that's so obviously noble. Mm -hmm. It's almost a cheat in a way in terms of hiring good people and because there's lots of other jobs, but a pulse, you know, in San Diego, you'd be you making want. bomb fuses or drones, you know, or, or whatever. Yeah. How about making a machine that's like little Wally and is just going to go clean up the planet. Right. right. And, um, and that was a, you can, it's easier to get really good people onto that noble mission mm -hmm. and it wasn't easy to get capital. Uh, that was another. That's another story. It took forever, but um, but it was um, yeah. It was it was a noble mission. It's a lot more fun that way when everybody feels inspired about what yeah. they're doing. Uh, I want to ask you procedurally because I think for people that aren't in this space, one of the one of the things that stands a lot of times between people and uh, a good idea and an execution is some people. I just was talking about this in one of the last episodes. People who have not been involved in the making of a thing don't understand what it actually takes to get something made. Yeah. You had an idea. You guys were talking around your problem statement. You come up with a couple of, of specific points of differentiation, mm -hmm. facial recognition, automating yeah. the system, paying out right then. But then you have to actually go between then and filing for the patents is the development process of creating the patent and knowing how to make that technically feasible. Yeah. Do you hire that workout? Do you go out to a couple of guys and have them sign NDAs and then like you're contracting with some people to, to do the work to create the patent or are you writing those yourself? No, I, um, I have uh, a patent, a friend of mine who's been writing my patents, I have 33, 35, something like that, patents uh, filed and maybe I don't know at this point 15 or something issued okay um, I haven't written a line of code since college mm -hmm. uh, but I uh, I can still invent things strangely enough um, and I kind of know what the technology can do so I can say go do this and so we filed the patents um, so I get other people to actually do the work, but we we filed the pat patents before we ever built anything okay and it turns out those patents I mean the original provisional patent that we did that we turned into a bunch of other patents we were spot on on everything mm. i mean it was it was luck more than anything else but but all of those original claims we ended up um expanding that into you know another 28 or 30 patents or something but but it was we did that and then we went to fill in you know what those claims that we had filed with actually building it and seeing what we do and we learned stuff along the way and filed new claims yep. but but it was um the, the original stuff is actually how the business and the technology end up turning out working, basically. And, and, uh, and for people that don't know, a provisional patent is essentially a patent, a beginning patent that you file that explains the idea for the technology and the function and the execution that eventually the assumption is you'll go back and expand that patent into specific You have a year from documents. filing it, and it really is just a, a stake in the ground with the date, a placeholder right. that I have this idea. And that's why you can patent it without actually having created well, a it's not that, that would expire. It would never be patent it would just expire and go away yeah but you have a year to take what's in that and file a real patent okay. with those claims and hopefully in a year you've learned a lot more to refine it so that your claims are a lot tighter and better yeah. because you now you understand a little bit more in detail of what you're trying to do yeah. which we did and we did uh, but it was from that moment in august of 2008 where we filed that patent had the 
you know, the general idea, it was uh, three years later before we had uh, an implementation of it that was automated. Hmm. For the first uh, three years, we stood next to, or had staff stand next to a machine, and they were the technology. Right. It said it looked like it would buy back a phone automatically, and it would pay you on the spot and all that. But uh, the technology didn't either it. didn't work or wasn't <laughs> in there or whatever. But it was the the people were the technology, yeah. and and uh, so they would make sure that it was an iPhone, you know, whatever, and not a banana or a rock right. or something, right? And so, uh, so yeah, we just faked it until we make yeah, it. Yeah. You know, uh, so um, yeah, but it worked. So uh, fast forward, you develop this, you file your patents, you guys get through the technical disagreements and limitations. Somehow you go to Hawaii, you come back, you haven't raised the money, you put your house on the line. Um, describe the process at the moment at which you actually know that you've got a successful thing. And then whether it's the same moment or the next moment, the moment when you know that that thing that you have is actually going to be a successful business model so um from the moment i sold that house and i was uh i got the call i was actually in my car down at la jolla shores uh looking at the waves and i got the call that the house was accepted at that price uh and finally it was sold and they all hit home and i just started bawling my eyes out i really was uh uh i haven't cried that hard maybe ever I was just like man I just lost everything and I'm sitting on this idea that no and I hadn't even tested it yet hmm. right we had the patents file but we hadn't even built a box and put it out yeah. and um, that was that was a hard spot and then about a month later uh, two months later maybe um, we had a prototype box built it really was just plywood a box painted with a a touchscreen bolted on the front that you would select, you know, your phone, Apple, you know, iPhone, does the screen, does it power up, does the screen broke, whatever, and it would yield a price, but it was an empty box, yeah. right? So we had to have a person. We loaded that up in my truck, and the first people that would uh, allow us to test it was Nebraska Furniture Mart in okay. Omaha. And so we loaded it up and drove at 60 miles an hour because it wouldn't go any faster than that uh, with this giant box in the back. And we put it in Nebraska Furniture Mart. and um, One box, one store. One box, one store. And we stood next to it. And um, how many people... So we were obviously weren't measuring technology, right? Didn't yeah. have any technology. But what it's it was pretty accurately test. measuring is how many people walking through a retail space... Right. Nobody has their phones, right? Um would see a box that looked like it would automatically buy back your phones, how many of those would spin on their heel, go to the parking lot, get in the car, drive home, get their phones, and come back and attempt to sell them, right? Mm. And uh, so we, um, yeah, it was a little slow the first day, and then it kind of picked up the second day. And then within a week, we had uh, a perpetual 30-minute waiting line. Within two weeks, Holy it cow. got to about 45 minutes, and it never got longer than that because people would just walk around the store yeah. and come back. But we had just lines of people. And then the next week, the news crews started showing up. People started coming at, to like, what? what is this pe you know, thing? By the way, lines are the best advertising ever. You know, yeah. People stay in line, everybody else is like, wow, i got to get some of that, right. whatever it is, man. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, uh, people would show up at the door at 9, place opened up, and they'd be banging on the door, you know, and the manager came back the first day it happened, he opened it up, and they all went back to our machine, you know, it's like... That's incredible. So, so we did a month trial, we collected 2,300 phones, 
and we couldn't have really gotten more volume through the machine uh -huh. really i mean it was just like max the yeah. whole time and uh i knew it would work so to answer your question i knew it would work at that point like mm -hmm. wow the mousetrap catches mm -hmm. mice like crazy at least in nebraska and i can it probably works you know other places too um so this works but it was a year and a half from that point and we built 20 more machines just like that same results everywhere we put them and the vcs would come out and see that and go yeah i don't think this is going to work <laughs> they had this bias against hardware big iron hardware and retail and consumer it's uh -huh. just too many moving parts and and all the competitors were starting websites just send in your phone yeah. uh gazelle maybe you saw some of their ads gazelle yeah, i think so um you know you just price it on the web and then send it in a box and then they send you a check well it wasn't immediate yeah. and i didn't think that was a good system but all the funding was going that way and they're like dude use the internet and mail don't build a bunch of capex and these really expensive machines you gotta service me you gotta pick up the phones you gotta put cash in it's a nightmare why would you do that and yeah. so they couldn't get over that bias um just a little bit of brag um, Eco ATM bought the assets of Gazelle, who was the big one just, <laughs> just about two years ago, because uh, that model ultimately didn't work. And that was my pitch. It's not going to work. Yeah. You can't keep that much, because you have to advertise nationally all the time, or the, the, the spigot dries up. People don't just send them in, right? Right, right. It turns out that was true. And so we bought their assets. And uh, so Eco ATM's still out there today collecting. Uh, they're probably at 20 million phones at this point, maybe over. And uh, they're, I don't know, 200. 50 million in revenue maybe more and they they also um have paid back probably close to a billion dollars to um to consumers for stuff you know 80 percent of it would have ended up in the yeah, in the dump yeah. and as toxic waste and so it's this little machine sits in retail and converts toxic waste into money for consumers that gets spent back in the store to buy other stuff and uh it's really noble from all angles and it created you know uh at last count i think it's um 2500 man years of jobs for people and it's still going wow. it's cleaned up those 20 million phones it's um and it's still going and um and it created i don't know 10 or 12 uh, millionaires that were in the company mm -hmm. and and a whole bunch of other see these kids that we hired that are, have bought houses now yeah you know right bought them right out of you know uh, out of college after the first job and uh so yeah it feels like a good uh, a good legacy i don't even know if i answered your question yeah right. absolutely. I got no, that's, a, it's, it's, <laughs> that's a solid win i mean there's so many things that i think about that you had to figure out along the way you know you had to figure out can we make enough money off what we're doing with these phones to yeah. actually like fund our business model. Right. Uh, what are you going to do with all this stuff? Like, yeah. can you take all the raw materials and turn them around so that the intent of the environmental benefit actually turns into an environmental benefit and you don't just end up with warehouses full of phones that you can't yeah. offload? All these things that I would imagine you guys just yeah, no, it years wasn't figuring out. The, the technology wasn't trivial either. I mean, it's not quite like building a, the complexity of building a car, but it's probably not terribly far off of that i mean it's a lot of moving parts a lot mm -hmm. of technology a lot of software a lot of robotics um a lot of constantly changing software on the phones the os's and how you read those over usb and um mm -hmm. and yeah so it wasn't a trivial exercise technology wise and then operations wise imagine having to put kiosks scattered yeah. all 42 and states service and maintain them and service and, and put cash in those and right. pick up the phones and get those back and then sell them to the buyers and so yeah it was a lot of uh, in fact i ended up 
I'm a pretty good CEO. I've done that, um, you know, a few times, and I, but I knew this was over my head. And so after I ran this for a year and a half, I uh, finally coaxed a good friend of mine who's a way better CEO, and uh, he loves tedious detail, endless minutia of spreadsheets of operational uh, stuff. Just I can rise to that occasion for a little while, but yeah. it's not the strength of my game, and I go nuts. Yeah. And so, and we had to do that part right because it was a really a lot of small transactions, a lot of stuff, oh, business. Yeah. And I knew I was probably uh, not going to, maybe not fail, but I wouldn't be as successful as that as somebody who just digs it and is good at it. Yeah. So a friend of mine, Tom Tully, I brought him in. Uh, he's a tough guy. You know, everybody that had worked for him before, and I had worked for him before, they're like, you worked for that guy and you hired him again as your <laughs> boss? Like, he, uh, But he is a real, you know, badass, you know, operation the kind of stuff we needed to do and he really so i hired my boss because he was going to end up making the investors more money than i would make and myself and all the employees and i was i went off and continued to do all the stuff i was doing but i didn't uh i would have i would have not done as well so uh yeah that maturity came with um with having, I wouldn't have done that earlier in my career, but yeah, yeah, yeah. at this point, it was not about being king. It was about, um, you know, pulling it off. And I also, you know, I knew that as we got more and more VC money in, that they would probably want to replace me. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, I'll replace myself before you replace because you know, I'll get my guy in. Yep. And uh, it turned out to be a really good move. He was a uh, huge asset to the company. And we ended up selling it for $350 million bucks um, to the guys, Coinstar and Redbox. Yep. and. Yep. And um, I would have probably gotten half of that or less if I had uh, done it myself. So, so um, broad strokes, because I'm interested in this as well, and I don't want to ask you, you know, co- no confidential details, nothing that you're not comfortable sharing, but like, what's the process of selling a startup for $350 million? Like, hit the high points. Like, you, somebody comes in and they're interested in it, or you're going out and you're courting potential sales, and how long did it take to actually make that sale happen? And what kind of, uh, you know, anxiety? Yeah, so uh, again, that? this is stuff I learned along the way, but, um, and I actually give a, a, a pitch on this um, uh, sometimes when I'm speaking, but you have to engineer your exit and yep. you got to do that from the very beginning of the company. And um, that's counterintuitive to a lot of people because, because here, here's the truth if anybody asks you what, you know, what your plan is to exit, your answer to almost every audience should be, we're not thinking about exits. No, we're just building a business. Haul. Yeah, you know, that's going to be. But in the back of your, you know, you should be engineer. You, if you're not paying attention, who's going to be paying attention to it? Right. And so uh, I learned that along the way, and and like, I mean, at the coffee table in the coffee shop when we were five, I started immediately making a list. Who would get, if we pull mm-hmm. this off and it works? Who who's going to give want a damn, it? right? Yeah. And and how and what are their trading multiples and what do they get? Yeah, how would they value this? And, and you know, because you should have some vision of that before you start, right? right? Because if you're going to throw a party and there's no happy you know ending, then you shouldn't start, right? Go do something else, and so. So um, that looked good in the beginning, and one of the people on that list was who's the biggest public self-serve kiosk company in mm-hmm. the you know it's Coinstar, and so I actually hunted down. He says stalked, um, but the uh, founder <laughs> of that company, Jens Molbach, who and I you know he knows everything I need to know or mm-hmm. a lot of it right. And uh, I found a guy on LinkedIn who kind of knew me that knew him, and he gave me an introduction. He gave me like a minute and a half on the phone the first time I called him. and said, like, yeah, 
And then I called, waited a week, and they gave me three minutes. And then I finally wore him down. And he said, look, I'm going to go. I'm going to be in Seattle on Thursday. I wouldn't going to be there. And, um, you know, <laughs> mind if I drop by and see you? No, nah, I got a busy day. You know, I might have some time at the end of the day, but I don't think so. You know, blah, blah, blah. So I just showed up at his lobby and sat there. And he walked past me a bunch of times. And then finally, all right, come in here. I got 15 minutes. Three hours later, how, I left. How it. early is this in the process? Do you already this have a was, successful uh, business at this, this point? Was or is six this six months after the patent. We hadn't built a box. And okay. We had oh, I love you know, that. three people not collecting a check that we're working on. Cool. Okay, go ahead. And uh, so anyway, I, I, I wore him down and um, and eventually got him as an investor, as a board member, as, you know. And uh, But... And then I, he wasn't involved in, he had sold Coinstar and hadn't been involved in five or six, seven years. Um, but he still knew the company and knew the, and so I, um, Coinstar actually ran this competition the next big, they were running out, they ran out of ideas on what other kiosk ideas. And they've been trying to do stuff internally for 10 years. Couldn't think of anything. So they ran a contest. So everybody else got ideas, right? So uh -huh. I applied and I won the thing and I won a, I think it was a, twenty thousand dollar check or something and um and so that's why i got on the radar okay. that was my plan from the beginning is anybody that's going to buy you get on their radar early because these big companies have slow heartbeats and yeah. there's 15 inboxes between the guy you know and the people that make that decision and they need to watch the movie for six months a year or whatever so it's better to have someone buy you than you to sell the company, if that makes sense. You don't want to go sell a company. You want people to come in and make offers, and you say yes or no, and get multiple, and you bring them uh, to a crescendo at the same time. You play one off the other. And so that's what we did, and we built that. Then after I won the contest, then they were one of our first investors as well. Mm -hmm. And then they got you know, on the board, and then they invested some more, and then so they watched it, and they tried to get us involved. You know, Hey, we'll run the ops for you, or we'll have our people service the kiosk. And we just said, no, 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 we're not going to become dependent on yeah. you because then I'm not going to get acquired. And I didn't want to, you know, uh, sorry for the metaphor, but um, if you get the stink of one strategic buyer like that on you uh -huh. uh, too much, the other ones go away yeah, and they'll yeah. never look at you. And so we had to sort of keep them close, but not too close. And so uh, I think we managed that uh, perfectly and then got what finally triggered the acquisition was that we... We raised a, we had raised about forty million bucks at that point, and we uh, went out and raised what's called mezzanine debt, another forty million of debt that's pretty cheap, um, that would allow us enough room to go public. Okay. And um, and once we had that in the bank, and they were trying to stop us from you know taking that and whatever. Once we had it in the bank, we had a clear shot to go in public, and they couldn't afford us if we got out. Right, and so they it triggered. Then all of a sudden, okay, well, all right, how much you want, right? And so we never right, spent the forty. Their hand. We never spent the forty, but we uh, we did. Uh, it was I don't know three or four months later we closed the. the like I said, I would have I would have caved it two hundred and taken it, but this friend of mine, Tom Tully, he's he's uh, he's amazing. He he just held on, held on, and uh, got three fifty out of him. So uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, so. Um, just a, we got just a little bit of time left. I'm interested. This is fantastic, and thank you for sharing all this. And uh, I'm interested to know how your like we talk about work. I say that the podcast is about how you find meaningful work, how you find meaning in the work that we that you mm -hmm. do. I know from our conversations and what you said at the beginning that like you have transitioned now into a lot of work that is heavy on meaning. You're taking the time 
and the ability that you have to now invest back into people, both in the worlds that you've come from, mm-hmm. in uh, you know, incarcerated populations and people that are that are just out of prison and helping yep. those people. What does the word work mean to you? Because you don't need to work for money now. Right. Um, nobody's paying you for the work that you do. So when you think about like, what what does that work mean to you as you look forward to what you're doing now and sort of the next phase of your working life? Um. That's a really good question, really interesting. Uh, it's provoking a lot of thoughts that I really, I haven't thought about it that way. Um, I guess a lot of what I've been doing is more reflexive than you're making me think about it. But um, I, think, I think being an entrepreneur is, uh, again, this is sounds self-serving, but I think it is a noble thing. Mm-hmm. I think um, that pursuit of building product i mean not all entrepreneurs are doing stuff that's noble but but i think most of them are and uh, just creating jobs mm-hmm. i mean um is a big deal uh, if nobody so if you're thinking of products or services to make the world a better place uh that people need and want and you are um you can go make that happen and it creates jobs and it creates wealth and it creates, you know, I think equate Tim's case, you know, the, the inventory I gave of, of the stuff that it does. Yeah. Um, that to me is a, that's fun stuff. And, you know, again, I talked about all these people that made money or building houses and, and, you know, uh, gone on to start other companies, this whole diaspora of people from equate Tim, they're doing amazing stuff. And I feel like I was part of that, you know, I yeah. was part of that. And, um, so to, it's not. I hate the the term giving back because I don't think I took anything from anybody. I was I was I was uh, doing my thing, and I, I I think most of it was. But I think there's and and look, doctors are noble, and you know, soldiers and firemen, and you know, there's lots of noble things to do, sure. right? I'm, I'm not trying to beat my chest that way, but I but I think that it is a noble pursuit uh, to go do that. And since I don't have it in me to be a monogamous 80 hour week thing. Um, what I can do is take what I know and, and help other people. And there's some ego in it too, because people listen to me and they think, you know, wow, that's it's great. The stuff you're telling yeah, they're me. They're going to take action on what yeah, you're saying. And so, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's fun for anybody. And so, um, I, uh, and as long as I feel like that is, uh, you know, benefiting the people I'm talking to and I'm not giving a, you know too much bad advice and uh, and I like to see the reaction I like to see people go on and be successful or more successful and uh, than they would ever build a better product or you know whatever and so all that's pretty fun for me and uh, San Diego's a small enough town where um, I can kind of know almost everybody and I'm really involved in the the entrepreneur community there and I um, and it's fun I mean um and I, I think it's helping uh, people. It's not hurting anybody, I hope. I give some bad advice sometimes, but, but, <laughs> but I try to avoid that. But uh, anyway, I don't know if I answered your question or not, but it's not really work to me. I don't go, mm-hmm. yeah, i got to go pull on the overalls and go to work today. Right. Um, uh, but I think I'm doing some good stuff, you know. Um, yeah. Anyway. It sounds like it. I appreciate you taking the time. This has been uh, super informative for me and your your candor and your honesty about the process, I hope, will be uh, informative for other people. I really appreciate the time, Mark. Yeah, thanks for uh, 
everybody wants to talk about my stuff, I'll talk about it. <laughs> right on. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks. This episode of The Distiller was recorded live in Lago Vista, Texas, just off the shores of Lake Travis, about an hour north of Austin. Uh, I want to again thank Mark Bowles for telling us a little bit about his story. It is inspiring to hear how these mythical tales of startup success actually happen. And I hope that in hearing Mark's tale, you're both clearer on the actual process it takes to get a product like EcoATM to market and inspired to pursue whatever it is you've been working on. These days, Mark's got his fingers in a number of pies. He's putting together a TV pilot that you may very well see on a screen near you in upcoming months. He's very active in the San Diego tech startup scene, both as an investor and an advisor. And he's continuing to work on behalf of prisoners and recently released prisoners to connect them with resources and education to help them realize their dreams. It's really good work. You can learn more about what Mark's doing including some links to work he's been a part of recently at our website. That is at thedistillerpodcast.com. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson, with co-production and booking from Terry Heist. Our show is mixed and edited by Justin Golden. Our logo was designed by Scott Ryan. And our videos are by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts. Please do click that subscribe button. That will make sure that you're notified when new episodes are released. It's the beauty of podcasts. And if you like what we're doing, please do spread the word. You can follow and share our posts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we would love it if you would rate and review The Distiller wherever you listen, whether that's Google Play, iTunes, Ratings and reviews mean a ton to a show like ours, and it's the easiest way that we uh, sort of expand our reach and make other people aware of what we're doing. So thank you for that. Remember, you can listen and download every episode of The Distiller, and uh, you can find information. That includes links, photos of the guests, a map of all our show locations, maybe with the exception of this one, and get in touch with us all at thedistillerpodcast.com. You can also shoot us an email, mail at thedistillerpodcast.com, and you can contact us on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook. We want to know who you think should be on The Distiller to talk about their search for meaningful work, where you think we should record the show. So please drop us a line, whether it's by email on the website or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We do always love to hear from you. So until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.